I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And I'm super excited to have my guest, Scott Stabile, with me today. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Thanks. Just like I said, just getting over this little cold. Yeah. But um, yeah. like, like we were joking, gives a little more radio voice. So yes. yeah, hopefully <laughs> listeners will appreciate that. Um, but we have a lot to discuss today. Before we get into that, I just wanted to read uh, this abridged bio that uh, New World Library, who published your book, Big Love, sent me. Um, so it says, Scott Stibule is the author of Big Love. His inspirational posts and videos have attracted a huge and devoted social media following, including over 350,000 Facebook fans and counting. We're going to have to have a side conversation about how to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. He lives in Michigan and conducts personal empowerment workshops around the world. Visit him online at www.scottstabile.com, and that is spelled S-C-O-T-T-S-T-A-B-I-L-E.com. Scott, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Chris. Happy we've, to be here. Yeah, it's so nice to connect. Like we've had this uh, interaction going for a while through social media, yeah. um, but this is our first time actually face to face connecting. So I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. And you know, I, I first heard your name through Jacob Nordby, a mutual friend, and right. I remember over a year ago or something, he said he was heading to sundance to have lunch with you and some other people and i went and looked you up because i knew he must be having lunch with some great creative spiritual minds and that's how i got to know you and your work so i yeah. credit jacob and yeah he is such a, a good dude and another guy that i had been friends with for a while so it was really great to meet up with him and uh, share time so i look forward to maybe the three of us one day getting Absolutely. together seeing what we can do but Absolutely. let's talk about your new book big love which again, Ooh, there is, it is. yeah, here it is. Published by New World <laughs> Library, who I'm a huge fan of. I, I'm always uh, looking forward to getting 
new books in the mail from Kim. She's a wonderful publicist, and uh, I'm not sure if she's representing you in this book or Monique. But she, is, she is, and she's extraordinary. Yeah. I'm, I'm like in heaven with her. Really, yeah. she's so good and enthusiastic, and and just great. She's yeah. so good at what she does, and she does it so beautifully. Yeah, she really does. Yeah, she's. I've worked with her for. I want to say about a year now with different authors and she's always been a real pleasure. So yeah, I'm glad that you got hooked up with her. Yeah, me too. So let's start simple right in the beginning. Um, in big love, you say nothing stands to transform us, our relationships and the world more than a commitment to live our lives from love, which can be a very difficult thing for many of us. Mm -hmm. And, and I speak still to this day, you know, from personal experience after years Mm -hmm. of practice, um, so I would love for you to talk about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with you first and foremost that it's incredibly difficult. You know, I think that we, a lot of people have a tendency to view talk of love as this kind of wishy, airy, fairy thing. Right. And maybe a weak choice and maybe a soft choice when my experience of life is that Choosing love is almost always the hardest choice you can make, especially when you're being provoked in any way. Right. You know, we are we so naturally steer toward blame and anger and condemnation and self-abuse and all of these other things that we, you know, that happen in our minds that that doesn't take any effort. You know, right. if if you're like me and I and I know in a lot of ways you are, because one of the things I appreciate about how you approach your work is with a fearlessness around sharing the shit side of it. And yeah. you know what I mean? And being real with that. So what what I've come to find in my life that has served me more than anything is just to to recognize that for me, love is the most powerful choice mm. that I can make. Because I see love as the base note for all that's good in our world. Things like kindness and compassion and forgiveness and authenticity, you know, they all stem from love. So when I speak about, um, you know, big love and making that choice, it's really about, you know, considering my life and recognizing that. I'm always going to fall off the love train and I'm going to be an asshole. Is it okay to swear? I yes, assume it is because it's you. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for asking, but have I at it. I your work, so I assume. Yeah, have um, at it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be an asshole and I'm going to be a prick and I'm going to do all these things that are outside of the energy yeah. of love, but I'm really committed to being as loving as possible. So I know I'm going to bring myself back to the energy of love. Right. And, and the more often we do that, we stand to transform not just our lives, but the lives of the people in our immediate circle, as well as the world at large. I mean, that's, it's powerful energy we have to share when we share it from that space. It is. So I have a statement and then a follow-up question. Statement is, I was having this conversation with a friend the other day about the underlying goodness of humanity. I mean, it's difficult right now. You look around and we are in some pretty terrifying times. Um, across the globe from weather to politics, you know, you name it. But the interesting thing is that, you know, going back to nine 11 or, or even before that, or any of the current, uh, catastrophes, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, what it seems happened happens more than not is the natural reaction. And it's not because your friends or family, strangers 
helping strangers. And that to me is what, where I completely agree, like this undercurrent of love, which can sound airy fairy, but it is like that natural human capacity. You know, it's what, what, it's what underlies our experience. Sure. We get lost up here. I knew I do all the time, but, um, you know, through the practice, well, not even, first of all, the natural response it's beautiful to see that. And again, not everyone responds that way, but it sure. seems like the majority of humanity is willing to just do whatever they can. So that was the statement. The follow-up question is, so choosing love, making it a practice, um, is there something specific you do on a daily basis to bring yourself back to that place? There's one very specific thing I do, which is I repeatedly ask myself the question, what does love invite me to do in this moment? You know, how does love invite me to respond? And and by asking myself that and, and making I've made that a habit in my life yeah. that even when I'm so if I'm in that blameful, angry, raging state where I'm not really present in love. At the very least, by asking myself that question, it might not necessarily put me in this zened out peaceful place in the moment, right. but it, it, it's a, a bit of a shake. It's a little bit of a wake up. So it, it challenges me, hey, maybe don't respond right now at the very least, because right now you are fueled with rage and judgment and blame. So if I can keep bringing that question and it can stop me from acting in a way that isn't aligned with how I want to be in my life, because our thoughts in my experience, Chris, like we can't, our thoughts are playing out many of them way before we have a time to select our thoughts. For sure. We're going to really dark, crazy places, but our actions are a different thing. You know, we can always stop ourselves from acting on the less enlightened thinking that's going yeah. on. And asking myself that question regularly really helps me to to center myself, you know, and to wait things out, wait out the storm if I can't come from the loving place, which is which happens a lot. Yeah, you know, of course. I, I don't pretend to be like Mr. Love all the time. Right. But I, but I'm super committed. Right. And I also know that my commitment is always going to bring me back. Yeah. You know, I'm super committed. And I know that's why we have such a mutual respect. Um it's like you're saying earlier, we don't pretend to be perfect at what we do, but we show up with the understanding that some days are going to be better than others. And for me, part of my practice has had to be uh, to cultivate gentleness towards myself and compassion and the acceptance that, again, 100% is not going to be the same. Like, you know, I've, like I mentioned, I, I just was traveling and I have a cold and I noticed it's a lot easier for me to get triggered in a way of like you know maybe i'm driving and someone cuts me off and mm. whereas normally if i'm okay it's like oh whatever they're in a rush but if i'm yeah. not feeling well it's like you know yeah. right? <laughs> but um so anyways that's been very helpful for me um and you, you you touched on this a little bit but i'd like to explore it a little bit more with you um you say that we can all be love spreaders let's talk about that it sounds dirty when you have your full, <laughs> your night music voice. Love spreaders. Love spreaders. <laughs> sounds like a really great like seventies R and B the love spreaders. Exactly. All right. Anyway, <laughs> well, look. I mean, 
<laughs> it brings me back to, you know, I grew up in the Detroit area and in high school, there was this, this radio show at late night called pillow talk with Johnny Williams oh, nice. and he had the voice and all they played was like slow groove, you know, music yeah. that makes you want to get busy. And it was yeah. like, yeah. So oh, love, love spreaders would have been featured on pillow talk for sure. <laughs> But what I mean, what I mean by it, I mean, one of the, one of the hopes with Big Love was really one of the, the, the main hopes is that it will encourage people to consider choosing love as a guiding force in their lives. And that's all I mean by being love spreaders, that it, it takes nothing to step outside your home and act in kindness sure. in your community and to strangers. And that's, that is spreading love. Right. It takes, I mean, kindness, I think, is the easiest mandate of love. But, and then we'll, let's talk about empathy. Let's look at this, the insanity that's going on in this world and the way people are not communicating with each other and just raging at each other. Yeah. And if we can just take the time to consider, like, what is it like to walk in that other person's shoes? What could their experience possibly be yeah. that would allow me to connect to their humanity a little more before I scream at them and tell them they're horrible? Yeah. That's that's love in action. There are so many ways to be present in love and to spread that. And, and obviously, we all know, I mean, one of the, for me, the craziest things is that we all know how it feels to love and be loved. We all know that experience as one of the most profound, beautiful experiences yeah. that life offers. And yet we're just, we're still straying away and just being raging, angry lunatics to each other, right. you know? So I'm just want to encourage people like just spread some love through kindness and compassion. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, anyone can do it. Right. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to be on a spiritual path. You don't have to be right. anything. Right. You know? Well, I love that. I actually, it reminds me, um, I took up the practice of loving kindness quite a while ago. It's, you know, it's beyond the scope of what we need to talk about now. But, you know, if anyone is interested, I would recommend Googling Sharon Salzberg and loving kindness. Or there's another, a, a n number of other teachers out there. She's just the one that um, I feel I've connected with the way she presents it. And I was um, chatting with her a while ago. And she also, so she lives in both uh, somewhere in Massachusetts and in New York City. And she has this practice, especially, I guess, in New York City, where when she's walking, she'll just um, take part of the slogans from the loving kindness uh, meditation. And so when she steps down on her left foot, um, I don't remember verbatim, but let's say, for example, um, she starts out, may I be at peace and then the next one is, uh, may I be happy or may I be loving, you know, any of these aspirations. Yeah. And then it just becomes the words like peace, love, peace, love. So with each step, she's mindfully in that space. And what I found interesting is she said that, of course, she never claims to be perfect either. But, you know, you're walking in New York City. It's very, very busy. Yeah. When people bump into her and she's in that space. It just rolls right off her shoulders, you know? So yeah, yeah. a practice as simple as that, which I know it's it, it's easier said than done before you get into doing it, but it becomes like riding a bike. And I've actually tried to uh, cultivate that in my own life. And on a good day, 
there'll be five minutes here and five minutes there I do it. But yeah. you know, it's, it's um, it matters. It yeah, makes a difference. Every yeah. little bit, right? Every little bit. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I think that we all know what, or we, we can all take the time to figure out what is going to serve us positively in our lives. We can all really consider our self-care. Yeah. And I see that as self-care too, yeah. to approach you. And, and then it just becomes about, you know, finding out what works for you and actually taking the time to do those things. Right. Even if it's five minutes a day, it's five more minutes of energy put toward your well-being. Absolutely. And it adds up, you know. Um, one thing, this is a tough one, I'm sure, for you. Um, but your parents, um, you know, they were murdered when you were 14. And um, how did losing them in such a violent way at such a young age impact your life? and your dedication to live your life from a place of love. Because, I mean, I can only imagine people that went through that, it would harden them, you know, it would, maybe they would turn to gang life, you know, to find family there or, you know, but it seemed to have a different impact on you if, if you're willing. I'm sure it's not easy oh, to talk no, about, but... Um, of course, it's, it's, yeah, of course. I'm, 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 I was going to say I'm happy to talk about it. Happy is not the right word, but absolutely open Thanks. to talk about it. Um, you know, I... I, my parents were shot to death when I was 14, so obviously that's a very young age yeah. to experience something so traumatic. And it's also a young age to have a lot of consciousness about your choices um, in terms of any sort of spiritual path. So I don't, when I look back on that time, I know what I did, but I didn't do it consciously. And what I did was just lock away the pain. I sure. buried the experience. I buried the grief, never talked about it manipulated conversations that had anything to do with family to different subjects so that people wouldn't ask about my family and my parents because I moved schools after that to move in with my sister. So I started a new school and yeah. nobody knew my story and I didn't want anyone to know my story. Right? And I worked hard to prevent people because it's, it's, it was so overwhelming for people, especially at that age, you know, suburban Detroit kids, that was not a reality they were experiencing. So it was, they would be so overwhelmed, you know, and I would be so overwhelmed by their, their, you know, shock and horror at what I'd gone through, that it was just something I avoided. And it really served me, you know, but again, I, I think I, I look at it as maybe some sort of divine intervention or some subconscious knowing mm -hmm. that at the time I could not take on the grief of that loss. So once a year, I would have an hysterical crying fit prompted usually by a lot of drinking, you know, and the inhibitions sure. were down and there was some conversation yeah. and I would have a meltdown. And then the next day, put it inside and just move on. And I was, you know, a straight A student and a popular kid and went to a good college. And it wasn't really until my 20s that when I, I started to get introduced to a lot of New World Libraries books and the whole idea right. of the new, the new Age movement and self-help and spirituality and, and meet people who were talking about being real with your pain yeah. and, and coming to understand that by shutting myself down to experiencing the fullness of what's going on, I'm also shutting myself down to experiencing all the possible light. I'm shutting myself down to experiencing the depth of connection that I could have with people. Right. And it, it, I started to open up to 
being with my pain. And when I say open up to it, it really just meant allowing for the grief, yeah. you know, we and allowing for tears and allowing for rage yeah. and, you know, screaming at God and all these things that I really never allowed myself to do for years. Yeah. And, and of course what I found, so one of, I don't look at losing my parents as a gift. I could never view it in that sure. way, but I do see gifts that came from the loss. And I think the biggest, the biggest gift was when you kind of asked me, how does it play into the, the love and how I view love right now? It's, you know, I feel like my depth of compassion and empathy for people in pain is so far beyond what it ever could have been if I hadn't gone through what I went through. And I can't even tell you how much I appreciate that because I know that that's one of the greatest gifts I have to offer people is my compassion yeah. and is my willingness to be empathetic and to to rest in my own experience to be able to connect with others and theirs. Yeah. So I, and I don't, I wouldn't, who know? It, it's impossible to say who I'd be today if my parents were living. Right. And I, I suspect I would still be a compassionate, empathetic person, but I don't believe that I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to show up in the same way without the loss that I've had in my life. Yeah. I, you know, it brings up for me and in, in no way is there a comparison between the two, but in my own life, I've struggled deeply with addiction to the point of literally being um, intubated because I couldn't breathe. My, yeah, you know, I was just—I've knocked on death's door a few times, and for me, that was a result. As you were talking earlier about not being able to experience that grief. Now, I did not go through anything near what you did, but you know, there's what I think it's Gabor Mate. I heard him first say capital T traumas, which obviously that would be, and then the little T traumas, which are just those everyday things when you're a kid that you take for granted, you don't think are really affecting you, but man, they snowball and snowball. And for me, just like you said, not being willing to go to that place and allow myself to feel those feelings kept me locked in the cycle of addiction, of churning to mostly alcohol, but you know, a lot of other drugs just to not have to feel it and it's tragic because you know there's an opiate epidemic out there right now uh yeah. i just lost a uh, a friend about two months ago he was in his 20s and that's something that seems like it's happening on almost a daily basis yeah. throughout the country um so part of the the hard part of the work which is so contradictory i find it's easy for us to forgive others but then when it becomes time to forgive ourselves and work with our own grief and whatnot, mm -hmm. that that's where uh, the rubber, at least in my experience, hits the road. Yeah. Now, for you, how were you ultimately able to forgive this man who murdered your parents? In a word, empathy. And it, it wasn't something I considered doing initially or even, you know, even contemplated as a possibility, sure. the idea of forgiving him. But I, I grew to realize, and again, this was predominantly in my early 20s and mid-20s, I, one, I, I could understand that raging and 
hating him and wanting vengeance and all of these things, all it was doing was creating this toxic wasteland inside myself. It feels, we all know what that feels like. And it's a horrible feeling. It's awful. And I started to, you know, consider what his experience might have been like. I, I understood that nobody who's operating from any sense of self-worth or feeling seen or feeling loved or, 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 you know, feeling any of these things that lead to a somewhat positive, more meaningful life could ever walk into a market and kill other people. It just doesn't happen. So I, though I didn't know everything that was going on in this man's life, I knew enough to know that he was struggling and I could, I can't relate to, I can't relate to killing somebody and I can't, I've never been to the point of actually wanting, like taking that action, but I can absolutely relate to feeling so enraged that I've wanted people to die. And I can absolutely relate to feeling so unloved and unseen and disgusting and whatever else. And it was like, when I started to, to connect with him through the ways in which I felt like I could relate to him as a human being, I started to notice that when I would think about him, it was from a completely different place it, and until I noticed that like I had forgiven him. Yeah. You know, I would think about him and it wasn't with hate in my spirit. It wasn't with the, the anger. It was with this, this compassion and this love and this true forgiveness. Yeah. But it was, it was really through empathy supported by compassion. I feel like you, it, that always has to be there too. Right. You know, and that, that's, I always think that's the path to forgiveness. Yeah. That's beautiful. And I've heard you say a couple of times now, which I really appreciate because it's something I struggled with is anger. And I realized I was so cut off from anger. It wasn't until about two or three years ago that uh, in a series of one week, two different friends, unrelated conversations had mentioned like, you never get angry. Like the music I used to play, like punk rock and hardcore, that was like an outlet for, for my anger. But like, aside from that, um, you know, I, I, I kind of shut myself off from that, but that is doing such a disservice, you know, now I'm not saying get angry and go out there and take vengeance, Mm -hmm. but allowing ourselves to feel what we need to feel, whatever it is without judging, you know, and actually flipping the script and loving it. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but anger is a part, let's say for example, right now I'm feeling angry. Well, that is a part of my experience. So am I going to like, you know, finger point at it and and call it a negative thing? Or can I open my heart to it and allow it to be there? Like you were saying with compassion and empathy. I have a friend named Kate who, um, who survived breast cancer. And her approach, instead of, you know, you see the fuck cancer stickers. And I understand that. Like I get the anger towards it. Mm-hmm. But she decided I'm going to love my cancer because it is a part of who I am. I might not want it to be a part of who I am, but how am I going to dissociate any part of who I am? So, you know, I think in all areas of life, again, easier said than done, learning to open our hearts to these unpleasant emotions. Because spirituality, as you know, isn't just love and light. You know, it's there's shadows and all kinds of stuff to re-own and reintegrate stuff and it's ugly and messy like you said you have those big ugly cries and i have them too sometimes and it's just 
life can be a total shit show. And, Absolutely. and that's okay though. Like yeah. that's life, right? Yeah. No, acceptance goes a long way. Yes. And, and I mean, even when you're speaking to the judgment and I, I do that a lot of times too. I judge what I'm feeling because, yeah. you know, especially we spiritual people for years, I, anytime I felt anything but bliss and kindness, I was trying to talk myself out of right. my actual feelings, which right. doesn't do any service to anyone. Nope. Um, <laughs> but, but also I think acceptance runs even deeper because it's like, can I also accept the part of myself that judges myself right. for feeling angry? You know right. what I mean? Like there's Absolutely. always a deeper level of yeah. acceptance. You know, can I accept the part of myself that doesn't accept the part of myself? <laughs> you know, it just, you yeah, know what I mean? Like when those mirrors you look in, it never ends, right? It just never goes, ends. it goes, it goes. Yeah. I know and what I have, you're saying. And it's beautiful because I, I, I can't honestly say I have them often, but sometimes I do like sink into that really deep level of acceptance where I can kind of like step outside of myself completely yeah. and just be okay yeah. with it. Yeah. And then those three seconds pass. <laughs> exactly. Three seconds if you're lucky. But... <laughs> if you're lucky and life continues. Yeah. And to speak to what you were saying with anger, look, I think there's so much value in anger. I mean, if, if there's anything that gets us acquainted with when we, when we recognize injustice in this world, it's our anger. Yeah. Like when we're feeling enraged about something, it's usually, it's often because something is not okay. Yeah. You know, and I think that, that what I'm trying to do, because especially in this political climate, I feel like I'm angry every day about something, you know, and what I'm trying to see is, okay, this anger is important. It's a, it's a powerful catalyst. Can I, how can, what can love do with this anger? You know what I mean? How can I move forward? Because I don't think anger is, it can't be the end point or I don't think healing happens, but it absolutely can be the starting point. Yeah. And then like, how can we weave in love and compassion and see what, how it mixes with the anger and what can we create there? Right. So that was beautifully said. Um, switching gears a little bit. And this is something that I've always been, well, not always, but since a young teenager, I've been fascinated by cults, um, <laughs> watching documentaries, like still, I just watched the one on, um, Oh, what was it called? Well, I don't know that you'd call it a cult, but it was a guy who, unfortunately, a couple of people died. Um, he was in the secret. Anyways, a very fascinating documentary. Um, but so you spent 13 years in what you described as a cult. And so um, I'm very curious about that experience. Like why, what, what called you to it? What was your experience there? And ultimately, when did you realize that it wasn't, you know, wasn't working for you. You needed to leave. Right. right. What called me to it, this was, again, at the time in my early mid-20s when I was becoming acquainted with all the New Age books and the, this whole world, I had befriended, I was working with and had befriended a lot of people who had a guru. Yeah. And so they were, I was completely enchanted with these people because they were always talking about peace and love. And I was, you know, I had moved from, Michigan, where I went to college also. And so I had only known like career goals in life uh, in line with career goals and things like that. And I was meeting these people who were talking about love as their goal and enlightenment as their goal. And I had never even heard of enlightenment at that point in my life. And, but I completely like 
completely jumped on this band. Like it made total sense to me sure. reading about this and, and learning about it and feeling these, these people and their energy. I'm like, this I like, this I get. Yeah. So eventually, um, you know, not too much time passed before I was like, well, I want to meet your teacher. And, you know, they, and I did. And it took me a year after that first meeting to actually call him back and say, I'm ready to be your student. I'm ready to be your disciple. So that's how I got into it. It was through other people who, you know, who might came to love the experience of it. My God, it's such a, it's so hard. I haven't, I'm not practiced at talking about this. So forgive me if I stutter through it and I'll know I'll need to be, I, you know, there's a chapter about it in the book, but it's such a big experience. And I think that, that, Basically, everything in our community was built around the master, the guru, yeah. which isn't even on, that's not out of the ordinary, right. you know, in guru world. And, sure. um, and he, he said he was an enlightened master and he, that was the, the essence of what he was proposing and offering is he was going to help us along the path to enlightenment. He was going to prepare us for enlightenment. So the, when enlightenment became the only thing I cared about, you know, and I was surrounded by people with whom, when I say the only thing, I don't, obviously people, I loved people too, but enlightenment became what I wanted more than anything. That was my goal in life. And I was in a community of say between 20 to 30 people at any given time who shared the same goal. Yeah. All we were doing was we were on the path to enlightenment. We were looking at everything through the lens of enlightenment, how far we were from enlightenment, what we needed to do to become enlightened. You know, that crazy saga. I'm so happy to say like, I don't ever think about enlightenment anymore. It's so not what I'm chasing after. And it's been a huge blessing in my life. But, (laughs) but so, so you come to, it's a community that is in essence built to support this man, to care for him financially, to care for him in every way imaginable. And it all feels okay because I believed he was enlightened. And part of that journey for me was also confronting all the parts of me that didn't really believe he was enlightened, but was continuously trying to convince myself that he is who he says he is. And because if he isn't, it's all a lie. Right. If he's here, because he, he literally would say he has no ego. The only piece of ego he has left is this, thread that connect, connects him to the earth so he basically doesn't evaporate <laughs> on this planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. so so he has no ego he is uh, along the lines with jesus and buddha so we i believed i was walking among jesus in modern day wow. we all we all did and how fortunate we were to be blessed in this way right and what i came to notice about the experience and i want to say there was so much love in this community and yeah. He had so much love to offer and, and being in a community of people who are so willing to be present with pain because it wasn't all about joy and like it was like like poking at where you're an ugly human being because we're all really ugly and we're all really beautiful and sure. we're everything. In, and I really appreciated that. I mean, that for me was like tough work, but work I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be honest with myself yeah. about who I was. 
and it was always through the, his lens. Yeah. So he was never wrong about anything. When he's making choices that seem really cruel or really manipulative or blatant lies, he was always acting as a puppet of, I'm using his words, a puppet of God. Yeah. So it's always his enlightenment, and it's always a gift he has to offer us, even when it seems like this does not feel enlightened. This feels just ego maniacal, and you know, and crazy. Yeah. And 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 again, so I'm, I was constantly in those years, not constantly, because sometimes I was more in the flow of being a cult member and a disciple than other times. But there's often this inner battle about of, of me and you're surrounded by people who are seeing him this way. They're probably having their own struggles, but there was this understood thing that we never talk negatively about the guru. Mm -hmm. So you're never processing, you're processing your own struggles with your own enlightenment, but not in the context that anything he says could be wrong. Right. If that makes sense. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's never wrong. Right. He's it's, it's never, it's an, a crazy thing. Like he was terrified of flying, but he wasn't really because his perspective was he was taking on the fear of everyone in the plane and processing that through his, his, so he, even something like that, he couldn't admit to just being afraid of flying, yeah. it, you know, it just, just crazy stuff where it's like, yeah. can't you just be afraid of flying? And that's okay. A lot of people are afraid of flying. Right, <laughs> like that's right, not, right. it doesn't make you any less anything, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, there was just no acknowledgement of his humanity really be beyond an enlightened being who's just here to enlighten others. And when I reflect on it now, it's with, so when I left, it, it took me about, I've been thinking about leaving for a year. Yeah. And I would say that I, I didn't for a couple reasons. One, this was my family. Mm -hmm. These were the people closest to me in my life. And I knew that if, if I left, there was a chance I could lose my community of friends sure. and I didn't want to, you know, um, I also really feared that I would be punished by God. I mean, he, that was a, a message over and over. If you leave a master and if you leave in any, you know, it, it's like a betrayal and yeah. you, God will punish you. Wow. And it's crazy in retrospect because I don't believe in a punishing God. Like I don't even believe in this. Yeah. And, but I was scared, you yeah. know, I was so, I was brainwashed. I mean, and I think it's, it's a trip to recognize, you know, I'm a, an intelligent, rational, all of these things type person, right. but you can still be pulled into many different kinds of manipulations, you know, in, and so when I did leave his life, he ultimate, and I told him I, I needed, I left in a loving way. And I said, I hope we can be friends down the line, but I need space right now. And, but I remained friends with all my friends. And after about three months, he decided that wasn't okay. I don't think it was okay for him to see that one, I was really flourishing in my life yeah. without being his student. Two, I was still really friendly with everyone because when other people have left, they want nothing to do with any of us sure. typically because it, it's way too intense. Like yeah. a lot of people leave that cult with PTSD and you know, their experience is very negative and they felt really taken advantage of and manipulated in, in so many ways. Yeah. Um, 
So he ultimately told all his students to delete me from their lives, and they did overnight. I never heard from them. I mean, it, it was a, and I really, I would say, after losing my parents, this was the most traumatic event in my life because it was like losing a family overnight. That's terrible. It was horrible. And not for me, because part of what he was teaching was so much of it was about unconditional love and unconditional friendship. And then this happens. And I realize, like, I look back on it and I'm like, it's not that these friendships were false. I really know we loved each other. And there's I still love them. But it was totally conditional on him allowing it. And if he didn't allow it for them, it was over. And that was that. And this was eight years ago, and I've never heard from anybody still. That's it. Wow. That was it. I was cut out. Well, I'm, I'm glad you made it out safely, because as you know, some cults take a turn for, you know, the tragic. So I'm glad you're here eight or so years later. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, and something else you write about um, in your book that I really appreciate, because it's something... I struggle with at times is fear and um, what steps you have taken in your life to work with that fear, allow it to be there and become more fearless. You know, could we talk a little bit about that? That's more of a selfish one for me because I'm going through some stuff right now. And, um, and I know it's a lot of fear coming up around these emotions and discomfort sitting with them. And um, so, yeah, I would love to hear about your experience. I love to talk about fear. (laughs) I really do. Because I feel like I have a much better relationship with my fear than I've ever had in my life. And it doesn't, it doesn't have nearly the amount of control over me that it used to, you know, and and I'm also afraid all the time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, (laughs) so all of those things are existing. Um, I went to, I, I'll tell you one thing. I went to a, a workshop with Elizabeth Gilbert and Rob Bell, Yep. A couple of years ago or a few years ago. And if you don't know who they are, listeners, look them up. They're both incredible human yeah. beings and writers and people. But they had us do over the course of a day, they had us write six letters. And the first letter they had us write was a letter to ourselves from our fear. And I encourage you to do this, too, if you have yeah. never done this exercise, Chris, because I've my fear's always been a bully and a tyrant and I've always resisted it and warred against it and, right. and more often than not coward to it. But this exercise, they're like just staying as open as you can possibly be to what your fear has to tell you. Why is your fear in your life? What's it doing for you? Right. So I wrote this letter and it was like, Dear Scott, this is your fear. Here's what I have to tell you. And my all it went on to tell me was all the different ways it was trying to protect me. Mm-hmm. It didn't, it was, it didn't want me to be hurt. It didn't want me to be judged. It didn't want me to be misunderstood. It, you know, it, it didn't want me to be bullied. And I'm reading this and I'm realizing all our fear is ever trying to do is to protect us. Yeah. That's its job. Yeah. And it just doesn't do its job very well a lot of the time because it protects us with the energy of, you know, if, if I, if I have an awkward conversation that I need to have, it could be difficult. Right. My fear says, don't do it, don't do it. But it does right. it with the intensity that it would do it. If it's like, I'm trying to run into a building that's on fire, yeah. you know, the fear isn't making, it's not distinguishing between what's in front of us yeah. from something that's not really that scary to something that really is. It's just saying, no, stop. This is uncomfortable. Don't do it. And once <laughs> Once I recognize that, 
that my fear was just trying to protect me, but it was kind of stupid yeah. that I could have a different relationship with it. And instead of this like dark tyrant, it became for me, I talked to it like a little brother, like a five-year-old who's kind of annoying and nagging at you. And mm. it, it le- I let it have its case because it always has to have its say right. without letting it have its way. And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Big Magic, it wrote it in a really great way. Whenever she embarks on a creative project, she knows her fears. Her fear is always there. Yeah. So she has a conversation with it and she says, listen, you get to ride in the, the back seat, but yeah. I take the steering wheel and never at any time in this process, do you get to drive this car? Mm. And that's what I realized is it's like, we often wait for ourselves to become fearless or to become less afraid before we take the steps that we want to take in our lives. But we find we never become fearless and we often don't even become less afraid. So all we do is we stop ourselves from moving forward because we're just afraid. Instead, we can learn to to say, hey, I'm going to move forward with my fear. I'm going to take it along. And I've one tool that I use for doing that in my life is just deconstructing situations. I think one of the biggest fears people have is around changes, making big changes and, and the fear of the unknown that comes with those big changes. You know, and I encourage people to remember, like, when we're at A, we're, we don't, the change is Z, we don't have to jump from A to Z. Yeah. We just have to get from A to B. And yeah. A to B might be sending a single email or making one phone call mm-hmm. or doing one Google search. And that is way more palatable for all of that fear. So just get to B and from B get to C. And suddenly you're, you know, you're at T and, and Z is is much more you know approachable like you can see you can see the end right you know and also i really try to create the most comfortable possible realities within the discomfort that comes from our fear of change and of the unknown and by you know what i mean because we can always be considering our comfort within the uncomfortable instead of just saying no because we know it's going to hurt or we know it's going to be uncomfortable can we ask a different question? Like knowing this is going to be really uncomfortable, what choices can I make to make it as comfortable as possible? Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really well said. It's actually, um, I've been working with that. I got myself back into therapy about a month ago. Writers go to therapists too, you know, like, so, you know, I'm very honest to know about that because I've been processing some big stuff and, Actually, a lot of what my therapist and I have been working on is very similar to what you just said. And he'll ask me, you know, to talk to him from that place of fear. And we, we've we come to very similar conclusions, you know, that you just mentioned. So it's really refreshing to hear you say that. And he also helped me with, um, you know, in the past I've experienced relapses with addiction. And I always, you know, looked at that part of myself as this terrible dark monster and and it is pretty commonplace in 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 a lot of the traditional fellowships to talk about addiction as like this thing that wants you dead and you know just this really you know just malevolent force and um you know he also helped me to see that that part of who i am in the past has stepped in at times and now i'm not saying i want to be very clear if you're having a hard time and you're in recovery, go use whatever your substance is. But what he did help me with to understand is that 
it's not that it's trying to kill you. He, you know, he did the same exercise. Talk to me from that place of addiction. And it was the same thing. It was that I'm scared. I'm hurting. And this is something that's been instilled in my reptilian brain for many, you know, many years ago. So it's kind of that fight or flight also with the midbrain. And, and you put those two together and what it's really trying to do is help me, keep me from the fear, keep me from the hurt, the sadness, yeah, the pain. Absolutely. It's not trying to kill me, you know? And absolutely. So, and so you just, as, as I've learned to experience it that way, like I was saying earlier, you know, thoughts still come and go. I don't know that there'll ever be a time in my life where they don't. Um, but I'm able to look at them with gratitude instead of like in the past, it'd be like a vampire, you know, like, and then I would feel guilty because it's like, Ooh, you have an alcoholic part of you. I'm more than just an alcoholic, but that's part of the sum of who I am. And, um, but now I can, I can at least, I don't know if smile's the right word, but hold, hold my heart open to it and appreciation that I hear you. I understand what your intention is. But I also know that it's it's the it's the cure that fails essentially every time. So yeah, yeah, um, no, yeah. beautifully expressed. I, yeah. I hear you totally with yeah. that. Yeah, thanks. And I, it, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say I've never really talked about that. On actually, I never have talked about that on the show, and I thought that was a nice segue because I know a lot of people who listen are in recovery. So thank you for uh, kind of opening the door to that. Absolutely, and I, I mean, my, I just think people were. We're also afraid to feel uncomfortable, right? And yeah. you know, and that's why we're numbing ourselves and escaping every yeah. possible emotion that is not comfortable. Instead of just feeling and and knowing what you said, it's okay to be feeling yeah. whatever we're feeling. This is the human experience. It's not easy, right? Often, but it's it's natural. It's human. It makes sense, yeah. Given the world we're born into and these minds we're given, yeah. Um, yeah. You know. So, another thing. You're a gay man. <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> a gay man. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> how, how have you found as that, because, um, you know, as I, as I thought about that, there, at least that I am aware of, there's not a lot of gay spiritual teachers. I, I know Ram Dass considers himself bisexual, but uh, aside from him, I'm personally at least not familiar with a lot of them. How has that experience uh, been for you? I mean, have you noticed any anything at all, or has it just been, hey, he's a he's a gay man, and whatever his his work is, what matters? Mostly that. I mean, it's yeah. mostly you know the people who are showing up in my social media communities and choosing to follow my work. It's they don't seem to care at all, yeah. you know. And I haven't gotten. It, the uh, the thing for me is I don't know of many other you know gay people doing this kind of work even though I'm sure there are and I met one recently a guy named Lee Harris and he found me and sent me a message and then I watched a video he had done and then we talked and we were both so excited <laughs> to just meet another gay guy who's like in the spiritual world trying right. to do this stuff and talk about love and stuff I, I suspect there are many out there and I'm just not aware of them but I'm really I, I really want to connect more with the gay community, you know, yeah. honestly. And I hope, I hope big love expands my audience in, in terms of that, because 
I guess only because, yeah, I'm gay and it would be cool to, to connect more with that community. And not even because I feel like I align myself with that community before I align myself with other communities. Yeah. But I do feel like, uh, if there is a big spiritual movement within the gay world, I'm not aware of it either. And I would like to be a part of it, you know, because, um, yeah, I would say that's what I say. I get messages from people, you know, from, from followers always feels like such a weird word, but so does fans. So I hate saying it too. I know know. know. from community members, you know, who are are out and who are appreciative that I'm so open about, you know, just my experience. And, um, but no, mostly it's just been like, whatever. It hasn't really, hasn't really been anything. Good. That's great. And maybe this conversation will help continue the conversation and broaden it. So, I hope in whatever way it does help. And so we have about, you know, 10 minutes, give or take. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I think it's a great segue. You have such a shitty smile on your face. I can't (laughs) wait for the question. (laughs) Well, I figured let's end with a real easy question by, you know, what, by which I mean, do you believe in God? If so, what does that look like? What's the God thing for you? You know, what better way to talk about being a gay man? And then let's yeah, let's jump right to God. Uh, so, let's end on a simple topic. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm becoming uh, increasingly more comfortable with my beliefs about uh, generally speaking. I feel like there's more to this experience than what just what humans can provide. I do believe that there is a, uh, a, a divine force at times. Sometimes I have experience in my life, even in connecting with other human beings, there's something happens that feels like it is superhuman. Yeah. So it feels like a divine energy. Yeah. Um, I, so in that, in that sense, you know, I believe in love And I believe the love that I believe in, that energy of love, is greater than human beings. Even though I believe human beings can embody that energy wholly, that energy for me is something otherworldly. And that that for me is reflective of any kind of God I believe in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really where I don't use, I almost never say God in any of my writings or my, my speech, yeah. but I, I, I wouldn't, I don't in any way feel like an atheist either. Sure. You know, I, I, I believe there's something out there. And when I feel most, interestingly enough, when I feel most present in my humanity and most connected to myself is when I feel most connected to a divine force mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's God. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the force that I can go to when I'm like, when I have those two to three seconds of like, everything is, is not only going to be okay, but it's so okay right now. Right. It's like you are being cradled by this loving energy and the fact that you're able to tune into it, even for a fraction of a second is a profound gift from God. Yeah. You know, so in that way, I believe in God. Yeah. I dig that. I think, uh, we're, we're pretty similar in our interview points on that. So lastly, I want to, I want to leave it to you. Is there anything, I mean, cause there's so much more in this book. We barely scratched the surface, but is there anything we didn't talk about that you would like to end with and, and let readers know about the book or, um, of course we'll get your website again, but, um, just anything in general about the book. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's called Big Love, and it's, you know, it's a collection of personal essays, and generally speaking about times in my life that I've been pulled from center and the, the tools I've used to find my way back. And I guess if there's one thing, aside from wanting the book to encourage people to consider love as a choice more often in their lives, I really hope this book helps people feel less alone in their lives and less alone in their struggle. And that's really one of the reasons I feel really committed to the work I'm doing in my writing is because I'm seeing, especially in my social media community, it's I'm, it's constantly being shown to me how similar we all are mm-hmm. and how similar our struggles are. Even if our circumstances are totally different, we can connect to each other. We all know grief. We all know every experience of, of all the feelings. Yeah. And, and, and that when I remember that I'm not alone in my struggle and in my pain, it really helps me. Yeah. It, I, it helps me to feel stronger, you know, and that's one thing I really hope people in reading about my experiences and seeing the ways in which I also talk about how I can be a total asshole as well as really loving and all of these different things that it will help people see or feel like, hey, it is okay to be the full breath of who we are as human beings. And we don't have to pretend to be anything more or less than, than who we really are. I love that. Yeah. And I'll also say the book's out now, so you can get it everywhere. It is. <laughs> and, uh, and visit Scott Stabile, S-C-O-T-T-S-T-A-B-I-L-E.com for any of your upcoming events or anything I'm online you're doing. I'm going on tour, so yeah. Yeah, there's lots of dates. Yeah, and I'm looking forward. We'll get you out here to Connecticut one way or another. Awesome. Let me know when you'll be in the area, and it'll be great to meet in person. And uh, it's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. It's a great, great book. I can't recommend it enough. To the point where I was honored to write an endorsement for it. Yes, I mean, thank you. For I'm that. no Elizabeth Gilbert, but you know, <laughs> it's nice to be included. Baby, you're Chris Grosso. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris Grosso. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and this is the Love Spreaders. <laughs> oh, Scott, thanks. Cool. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, thank you for your time, my friend. Thank you too, Bob. Okay. Appreciate it.